0: Hi, I'm Tiernan Ray, and you are listening to the Technology Letter Podcast for Sunday, December 4th, 2022. It was a perfectly fine start to December, the NASDAQ Composite Index closing the week up 2% after finishing November with a gain of 4%. The Standards and Poor's 500 Index this week, a gain of a little over 1% after rising half a percent in November. CHIPS, semiconductor stocks, continue to be an area of health, at least in the couple of days we have of December. Despite everything that's going up against CHIPS, uh, the data continues to be bad. The latest chip data from the industry consortium that tracks these things, the Semiconductor Industry Association. The semiconductor billings is what they call um, new invoices for chips issued. The billings number in October showed a 7% year-over-year decline, according to SIA. That is worse than is typical for this time of the year, worse than seasonal, according to analyst Aaron Rakers of Wells Fargo, who regularly tracks the data. It's also a speed-up, notes Aaron, from the pace of decline that we saw in August and September. Despite that, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, the broadest measure of chip stocks, started December with a gain of three-quarters of a percent at week's end, Following a whopping 19%, it was up 19% in the month of November. It's going to be interesting to see if that continues as the data continues to be bad. This is not entirely surprising. I've said this a number of times. As the data gets worse, people say, "Okay, so now I know you know what's under the stairs. Now I know what's in the back of the refrigerator. Now I know what that thing is that went bump." In the night, and I feel comfortable that now I can move on past my fears. That's at least what I've observed over many, many, many years of semiconductor cycles and investing patterns. The TL20 group of stocks to consider, I'm happy to report, had a roaring week, uh, rising 3%. Okay, maybe. Roaring is a little bit of an exaggeration, but it did well. Uh, Gains were led by DigitalOcean, up 11%, and Block, that's Jack Dorsey's other company, used to be called Square, now it's Block, uh, up 8% for the week. Uh, And there are now 12 of the TL20 names, 12 out of 20 in the group that are positive. Uh, Arista Networks continues to lead the pack up about 33% since mid-July, and Coherent and Tesla are the two biggest losers still, uh, down 23% and 19% respectively since mid-July. Coherent and Tesla continue to be dogs. It was a fun earnings week, and I say fun because it's always fun when there are younger companies, less predictable, and maybe more on the line because every earnings report um, is a more significant part of their development as companies than say companies that have been around for 50 years. CrowdStrike is a company that went public in June of 2019 and has had a perfect record. Nearly four years of this um, company reporting, no problem, but Tuesday when they reported their quarterly revenue forecast for the first time ever missed consensus expectations. Had to happen. This always has to happen. At some point, a streak has to end. The proximate cause of that breakdown in the report for CrowdStrike was increased economic headwinds that caused elongated sales cycles. We've been, of course, seeing this now from so many companies Uh, in this earnings season and in the prior earnings season as well. It's been a complete breakdown, uh, so not entirely surprising here. During the call, George Kurtz, uh, the CEO and a co-founder, said uh, that the company's, quote, net new ARR. Now, net new ARR is one of those non-gap measurements of the business, what I refer to as the metrics, that the street just loves because it's supposed to give all kinds of insights into a business. He said the net new ARR, that is the portion in the quarter that added to the basically forward 12 months total contract value, uh, if you get that, uh, that was below our expectations. He said, quote, as increased macroeconomic headwinds elongated sales cycles with smaller customers and caused some large customers to pursue multi-phase subscription start dates which delays ARR recognition until future quarters. Uh, So small companies are where the problem is. And and of course, that's a little bit ominous that small companies are grappling with things because that's, I think, what we really fear in an economic breakdown is that lots and lots of small companies really have a hard time. Enterprise companies are are not um, having as hard a time, but they are asking for this, what he called multi-phase subscription start dates, which means we want to buy the product, but we want to start paying for it uh, maybe in portions or staggered, I don't know, sounds like buy now, pay later, something like that, Uh, but none of this is great news, but the stock did fall about 15% the next day, but ultimately uh, rebounded in subsequent sessions. Uh, it seems that this is a case where people said this is a really strong company and so we're just going to look past, uh, after we've sold off the stock, then we'll look past uh, this one terrible break in the streak. CrowdStrike, the big dog for the week. On the other hand, Wednesday, Pure Storage had a much better time. Pure Storage beat expectations, uh, though its revenue outlook was slightly below consensus this quarter. Uh, analysts looked uh, past that. The, the stock had a favorable reaction. The tone on the call was very upbeat. Charlie Giancarlo, uh, a wonderful CEO, wonderful fellow who I've interviewed a number of times, uh, was kind enough uh, to get on the call and tell people that his quarter is going great. Uh, why is it going great? Well, he said that um, basically uh, the, the enterprises continue to purchase storage equipment from him, uh, and his metrics, quote, annualize recurring revenue, ARR, a measure of contract value. That is, uh, for the first time, for the subscription portion of that. So now this is the thing about metrics. They get um, divided into different kinds of, they get sliced and diced all kinds of ways. So a company like Pure will have annualized recurring revenue that is contract value out 12 months in time for uh, different kinds of things, different kinds of ways that products are, are priced and sold. And in this case, for all the stuff that is subscription, which the company is emphasizing because the street likes subscriptions, that ARR component surpassed $1 billion for the first time ever. And that's a big deal for the company, and so that was a big selling point for the quarter. Uh, the A couple of things that Charlie emphasized in the quarter that he and I had talked about not so long ago, just back in September when I interviewed him in New York, one, declining price of NAND flash chips. NAND flash, the kind of thing that holds your, your data on your iPhone, also used for the fastest forms of data storage in enterprise, the price has been coming down now as Micron technology and competitors are dealing with a glut of memory chips because of course suddenly there's a collapse in demand. So that price of NAND flash chips has been coming down and, and Charlie had told me he thinks that's going to allow the company to eat into the market for disk drives sold for nearline storage. This is bulk storage where performance is not a, an important thing, you just want to get the cheapest dollar per bit He's now saying the cost of flash is going to be so cheap that his company, when it buys those flash chips and packages them in its equipment and sells them, it can can be competitive with nearline storage, which could be a major thing. The other thing that he emphasized on the call, Giancarlo said that uh, he, he continues to have discussions with a number of hyperscalers and intimated that might produce some large deals like this year's signature large deal, a huge deal with Meta to uh, provide tons and tons of flash storage for the research supercomputer that Meta is building for AI. And he um, he said, our conversations continue where we're optimistic that we will see realizable opportunities there, quote unquote, but he added, quote, again, too early to be able to put any real guidance on that. So winning deals with other hyperscalers, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, any of these guys, that could be a really big deal for uh, Pure. I hope it happens for them. The important thing on the call was that Giancarlo was very upbeat about, you know, the economy's flat. We expect there to be recessionary pressure, but um, we expect to be. Uh, we expect IT spending to be up better than GDP, and and he expects to outperform the market. This is a lot more encouraging than the CFO Thomas Sweet at Dell Technologies, Pure's competitor, one of their competitors. Uh, the week before, if you recall, Thomas Sweet had told analysts, These dynamics are creating a broader range of financial outcomes for our upcoming fiscal year, which was really not what people wanted to hear at the time, Uh, really discouraging because it's so open-ended and kind of ominous. So Giancarlo this week kind of came in as um, the reassuring force to tell people it's okay. There'll still be lots of IT stuff purchased. So bully for... Pure Storage. The same night, Wednesday night, as uh, Pure was reporting, we got a report from another company, Snowflake, and um, this was not so uh, encouraging. This was kind of like a CrowdStrike deal, where um, for the first time since coming public, Snowflake came public, uh, I believe September of 2020. So been a couple public couple years, and again, there's a string of terrific quarters, but. First time ever, their forecast for their product revenue, this is leaving aside any money they make on professional services consulting, just the product revenue. This was uh, the worst miss for product revenue since the company came public. They may have missed in past, you know, in certain quarters by like a percent or something, um, but this uh, was a 3% miss. This was big uh, and and not, um, very, very well received by the street. Uh, on the call, management said that, um, and specifically, Snowflake's CFO Michael Scarpelli said that over the past six weeks, we have seen weaker consumption in Asia Pacific. Consumption is a is a technical term here. Unlike a lot of companies that sell a subscription, you you pay and then you can use this product as much as you want. Uh, Snowflake does it differently. They sell. Uh, you sell you a contract where you kind of get credits and then you can spend them as you want. and So they report revenue as you use the product, it's supposed to be a more transparent way to price. Anyway, what it means is at any moment in time revenue can be wildly unpredictable for Snowflake because their customers may or may not use the product much more than expected or way less than expected. At the moment, some customers are using the product less than expected in certain areas like Asia Pacific, and so that's leading to this shortfall in the forecast for product revenue. Um, He's saying, Scarpelli was telling The Street that he expects with the holidays coming uh, and a lot of uncertainty about how customers will operate, he's taking a more conservative approach to uh, his plan for the, uh, the the forthcoming year. Uh the the view for next fiscal year is also lower than street consensus. Uh and the the consensus the consensus of the analysts coming out of this uh is a lot of uncertainty. Sterling Aughty, a longtime software observer who is now with the Ma- Moffat Nathanson Boutique Brokerage. Uh, wrote in his note to clients about Snowflake, quote, investors are likely to debate the preliminary product revenue outlook for fiscal 2024 in terms of how reasonable it might look. Even though it's weak, in other words, Snowflake's view for 2024, it's fiscal twenty-four, which is basically 2023, might still be uh, not realistic enough, might still be too Pollyannish. Snowflake, uh, along with CrowdStrike, a dog for the week. Another great report alongside Pure this week, though, a same the same night, Wednesday was a big night for earnings was Nutanix. Uh, I have interviewed CEO Rajiv Ramaswamy a number of times, including just a couple weeks ago. Uh, We talked again on Wednesday night after the call about this great report. Not only were the revenue results better than expected, the company delivered a surprise non-GAAP operating profit. It had led analysts to believe that it would have something on the order of um, a, a non-GAAP operating loss equivalent to maybe 6% of revenue, but it turned in a couple percent positive in the quarter. Uh, Rajiv told me on in our discussion that um, the company is, is continuing to be disciplined, as he put it, in terms of how we manage expenses, uh, and we will keep that going forward, he said. And so the outlook for this quarter is for operating profit margin to expand... 5 to 10% of revenue, and for the full year, he expects that margin will be positive 2% to 4%. He told me, quote, we know what we can control, unquote, in terms of operating expenses, and quote, we have a history of controlling that in the time that I've been here, so we're very confident about the ability to manage that. So interesting, one company suddenly really swinging to profitability, focusing on that after not being profitable, uh, and maybe gaining, maybe gaining some new interest from I don't know, investors who like profit. Uh, an important company to watch, Nutanix. Sunday, I posted an interview with the chief financial officer of Qualcomm, as mentioned last week, CFO Akash Palkewala. Akash is a fascinating person to talk to, uh, a 21 year veteran of Qualcomm. He came there in the MA department as a young engineer 21 years ago, 2001. And he has a great perspective on how the company has changed over time. We talked about a bunch of things. Uh, Alert, this is a quote-unquote long read in the Internet's parlance today. It's a long read, but I think you can handle it. Uh, What it does is basically go into a number of pretty much everything that is pertinent right now about Qualcomm. The basic story is the company has been diversifying its business. It used to be more or less 100% handset chips. Now about 22% of chips are going into automobiles, into things called Internet of Things. This could be a Meta Quest VR headset. They sell chips for that, millions of them. Or it could be a Microsoft Surface Pro tablet computer running Windows. So uh, these are new markets, and uh, it seems that although the company has been banging the drum about diversification for several years now, it still may not entirely be clear clear to investors. And so he and I had a discussion about what things might still be confusing investors about the stock. The stock, Qualcomm, of course, is one of the TL20 stocks. And um, it it has been one of the dogs. It's down 13%, which makes it the third worst stock in the TL20 since mid-July behind Tesla and Coherent. And um, so I think it's, I think it's not being given its due. It's forward EBITDA to sales multiple 3.7 times, and the forward 12 months projected revenue is not far from what it was five years ago, even though this company has become a more diverse company in terms of revenue sources, and also more profitable. If you look at it, it's a non-GAAP operating profit margin. The last two years, a 17 Percentage point increase, expansion in non-GAAP operating profit margin in the chip business—that's amazing. Uh, so check it out. I hope that you'll even—I hope that even though it's a "quote unquote" long read, you will not be deterred and you will read at least some of this long read. I also want to mention um, a couple of quotes that came to me from doing some reporting over at ZDNet about things pertaining to AI. These are not immediately stock investments, but they're really interesting tech trends that I think it's fun to know about. On um, Tuesday, I interviewed, not interviewed, I took part in a press briefing by Cerebris Systems. Cerebrus Systems is a startup building AI chips and computers, fascinating company. I've been following them for several years now. Uh, and they announced a new cloud-based service and much of this would not be necessarily of interest to you, but what was interesting to me was Andrew Feldman, the co-founder and CEO, who always has his finger on the pulse of things, mentioned in the course of this press briefing that large language models, these are AI programs that are in the news constantly, things like OpenAI's GPT-3, you've heard about these. They've been covered in the New York Times and everywhere. These are programs that generate human-sounding text, reams of copy in in all different fashions. They can generate poems, they can generate stories, they can generate blog posts. So uh, Feldman believes that we don't fully grasp just how significant these AI programs are going to become as they go from the lab to industry. They have been used mainly by large companies like OpenAI and Google and uh, Microsoft and, and Amazon because they cost so much money to develop. Costs are going to come down, and his company is in fact helping to do that. And as the costs come down, there's going to be a whole ecosystem for business to use large language models. Said Feldman, quote, We believe that large language models are underhyped, not overhyped. Quote, we are just beginning to see the impact of them. There will be winners and new emergence in each of three layers in the ecosystem: in the hardware layer, the infrastructure layer, and the application layer. And he predicted, quote, next year you will see a sweeping rise in the impact of these large language models in various parts of the economy. Well, what kind of sweeping rise might that be? Well, in this press briefing, the company was announcing it's partnering with a startup called Jasper. Jasper is one of these uh, Silicon Valley unicorns. I think it's valued at about a billion and a half. Um, It's gotten a ton of venture capital money. What Jasper does is, it uses cloud resources including the Cerebris computer to let companies run these large language models without spending too much money. So now this is a democratization. You don't have to have a huge supercomputer to run these large language models. And what companies wanna do with this Jasper service is they want to take these large language models and customize them for their business all for the purpose of creating things like Press releases, blog posts, uh, internal, you know, memoranda, HR documents. Um, The CEO of the company, Dave Rogenmoser, said in the press briefing, these companies, quote, they want personalized models and they want them badly, unquote. The idea, he said, is to get the marketing department, quote, all talking with the same voice, unquote. And for new hires who cover the company, To, quote, get up to speed all speaking with the same voice, unquote, as the rest of the company. So um, that includes things like these programs, spitting out blog posts, spitting out press releases, spitting out Facebook ads that have a, a consistent voice of the company, of the brand. So step back. What does this mean? It means as there's more democratization, meaning bring down the cost of using these programs that generate reams of copy, the world is going to be filled with even more press releases and blog posts uh, and ad copy than you have ever seen because it's not going to be automated and it's going to seem kind of quasi-human, but it's it's basically a bot generating endless paragraphs of cookie cutter copy about how great the product is. Uh, It sounds to me kind of like the end of Western civilization, but I'm sure, as usual, I'm being a little too cynical. On a more positive note, also this week, uh, this was the 36th Annual Neural Information Processing Systems Conference. NORIPS is is the familiar name for it. It's a conference that's been going on since the 80s, and it is the conference in the world for AI people. It was going on in New Orleans. I wasn't in New Orleans. I was watching via Zoom. They had um, uh, streaming of the keynote talks. Uh, The ending keynote of the week was by a fellow named Jeff Hinton. He is a dean of AI, very, very famous, won many awards. He has a fellowship with Google. Uh, In addition to being a professor at the University of Toronto, you could say Jeff Hinton and his graduate students at the University of Toronto kicked off the current mass era in AI that we're in a decade ago uh, when they delivered unprecedented results in image recognition by a computer program in the annual ImageNet competition. So this was the shot heard around the world. And Jeff Hinton uh, and his graduate students, uh, Alex Krashevsky and Ilya Sutskever were responsible for that. So this week, he was invited to NORIPS because the, that work a decade ago was recognized as a As a work that had stood the test of time by uh, the organizers of the conference, he was invited to give this talk. And He gave a talk, and a little bit of it was about a new program he's invented that he's kind of uh, dabbling with. But toward the end of his talk, he busted out with a fascinating perspective on where computers are going. Um, He said that, uh, until now, computing has been immortal, quote unquote. That's the term Hinton used, which I thought was a brilliant uh, kind of turn of phrase. What he meant was. Computers all the computers we know, from ranging from your iPhone to uh, the biggest supercomputers in the world, have been engineered to in the same way for the hardware to be reliable by basically over engineering the hardware, making it extraordinarily complex, all for the purpose that the software programs written by people like Hinton and others would be able to run reliably on multiple pieces of hardware. Uh, This is is the immortal approach. All digital computers to date have been built to be immortal, he said. Uh, Quote, we can run the same programs on different physical hardware, which means for a programmer, the knowledge is immortal. However, what Hinton argues is, quote, what I think is that we're going to see a completely different type of computer. Not for a few years, but there's every reason for investigating this completely different type of computer. What kind of different computer would it be? Well, it will be neuromorphic, which is not a term he has invented. Neuromorphic meaning it may kind of more closely model what we think is the nature of neurons in the body. But this is, I think, a term he has invented. No longer immortal, but mortal computing, meaning that every computer will no longer be this... Um, highly, highly reliable digital thing on which you can run any software, it will be a close bond between software and hardware, kind of evolving in a sense. They'll be messy, they'll be organic in a sense. Uh, Hinton's point is that by making these immortal pristine computers they are highly reliable, um, the whole field of computer systems has, quote, uh, missed out on all sorts of variable comma stochastic, comma flaky, comma analog, comma unreliable properties of the hardware which might be very useful to us. So to my mind what Hinton is saying is the future is analog instead of digital computers ones and zeros that are uh, engineered to be very consistent uh, from one unit to the next people will start to create computers that have a lot of analog properties where they take in a lot of the uncertainties that can exist in the natural world and they'll make use of that in a productive sense. Um, And he sort of, he says that even people who have dabbled in analog computers are a little afraid to go there um, because uh, it it means abandoning this certainty, certitude of of the digital computers and you basically would have uh, uh, something like, um, quote, as he put it, you'd replace uh, those, uh, those reliable computers those with cell phones that would have to start off as a baby cell phone, and it would have to learn how to be a cell phone, and said Hinton, that's very painful. I think this is fascinating. I think that Hinton's right on. I think the future's analog. I think it's going to be very different from the 70-some years of the digital transistor that we've had. And uh, I think it uh, will probably take longer than the few years that Hinton mentioned. It may be beyond our investment horizon. But consider this, companies such as Analog Devices, one of the TL20 stocks, are important to keep an eye on because they have those analog resources that can be useful in this kind of context. It means you need to look, I think, much more broadly at semiconductor companies and other kinds of tech uh, beyond how people have been looking at software in this immortal computer situation as having all of the value. I think it's fascinating and um, I'm excited to see, uh, well, I'm excited to see if I can pick out parts of that going forward. This coming week, don't touch that dial. Earnings season is not over. This is, again, like last week, one of the most interesting weeks of earnings season. We're getting into the dregs, but it's a fascinating time. We'll have um, GitLab and Sumo Logic reporting Monday evening, fascinating companies. Couchbase, a database company I've written about recently on Tuesday morning, along with MongoDB, another database company, and Zora, the subscription economy company, Tuesday evening. Uh, then Tom Siebel's C3AI will check in uh, on Wednesday, along with HashiCorp, uh, another young company. And Thursday, we will get a report from at least one mega cap name, Broadcom, the chip and software conglomerate. Uh, and it'll be interesting to check that out. Hock Tan's company. Uh housekeeping note, I will have a special announcement this week about the business future of the technology letter. And I don't want to get in, into it too much right now. I think you'll find it interesting. So stay on the lookout for that. For the technology letter podcast, this is Tiernan Ray, Sunday, December 4th. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'll see you on the other side.